What's up, what's up? You are now listening to FY Fly the podcast, and I'm your host, Hassan Thomas, along with Remy, and we are here to share tools on how millennials can budget, save, invest, and understand student debt and credit to achieve financial freedom. If you're a high school student, college student, or someone who's interested in gaining more financial insight, this podcast is for you. I'm trying to give me a bag. 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 What's up, what's up, my fly folks out there? How y'all doing? I hope y'all doing all right. And y'all already know, this your boy CEO Sonny, a.k.a. Hassan Primetime Thomas. And I know y'all missed us. Well, we missed y'all too. You heard it first from Mr. Mega Play himself, a.k.a. Remy G. In honor of Black History Month, me and Remy G decided we'd give y'all a special episode before Season 2 takes off in April. Man, it feel good to be back in action. We can't wait for Season 2. We got some great guests and some valuable conversation that's really going to make sure y'all get into a bag all 2021. Yes, sir. Not only getting a bag, but keeping a bag as well, bro. Because you know what we like to say. It ain't about how much money you make. It's about how much you can keep. Facts, CEO. Well, if y'all didn't know, here at FYI Fly, we like to start off the show with a meaningful quote about money. This is a show about financial literacy, and financial literacy at its simplest is understanding not only how to budget your money, but being able to save and grow your money effectively and efficiently. So today's quote comes from civil rights leader and former congressman John Lewis. We have to solve the issue of poverty, the issue of hunger, the issue of war, spending billions of dollars to kill rather than build. So today we're going to be talking about one of the most popular and renowned series of marches in civil rights history. These marches actually led to the Voting Rights Acts of 1965. Also, we're going to chop it up about some of the economic impact systemic racism has had on our people. Yes, sir. So let's get active. So for those of you who haven't seen the movie Selma, we're going to lace y'all up a little bit on some black history. So the protests that were held in March of 1965 were due to the unconstitutional laws set in place to suppress black voters' rights. Some of those laws and taxes that the government used back then were taxes that African Americans couldn't afford to pay, literacy tests they couldn't pass, fraud, and intimidation from local law enforcement and citizens. Bro, they even had a rule called the Grandfather Clause. A Grandfather's Clause? Bro, what's that? Bro, it was a law they had set in place that says you couldn't vote unless your grandfather voted. That's really wild, because I'm sure most people's grandfathers back then were slaves. So leading up to the Voting Acts of 1965, Actually, in 1964, after winning the Nobel Prize, Martin Luther King led hundreds of black people to Selma's courthouse. Despite being denied multiple times, MLK and his followers kept pushing, eventually getting the 24th Amendment passed, which stopped taxes placed on black voting. Bro, I don't think we give MLK enough credit, to be honest. He got a whole holiday, bro. I know, but he was stiff. Like, imagine if MLK was around today. He wouldn't be going for nothing. Nah, for real, though. He was stiff. To stand up and lead peacefully against white supremacists who were fighting not only a physical war, but a political one as well? That's crazy. Like, for example, bro, Bloody Sunday. Hold on, bro. MLK actually wasn't there on Bloody Sunday. That particular march is really what caused MLK to call on other political leaders and supporters to come join in on the other marches. So for those who don't know, Bloody Sunday was on March 7th when John Lewis led groups of protesters across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Edmund Pettus Bridge? That sounds familiar. And yeah, remember we went down our Bonner trip? Yeah, you right. So Bonner, for those who don't know, is the volunteer scholarship that me and Remy G were on. The only reason we came from the ace time to Tennessee. Facts, just like the Oilers, baby. But when the protesters got there, 12 and a bunch of citizens were lined up shoulder to shoulder, waiting on them at the end of the bridge. Even though they knew they were in for an old-fashioned Bama beatdown, they marched on until they met them face to face. Law enforcement began tear gassing, hitting them with the knife sticks, even homemade weapons wrapped in barbed wire. Many people were put in the hospital because of this event. But Bloody Sunday, unlike most of the other injustices back then, didn't go unnoticed. Didn't they get most of it on film, bro? Yeah, they did. Which, like we said, led people from all over the U.S. to come to Selma, Alabama, just to show support and marshal protesters. Two days after Bloody Sunday, MLK led a larger group of protesters across the bridge, but was stopped again by law enforcement, who just wasn't going. Not at all, bro. To the point where the federal court had to order protection from the National Guard for the protesters. So on March 21st, a group of 3,000 people, which eventually grew to 25,000, marched to Montgomery, Alabama. Now this here was a real turning point in civil rights history. This led to the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1965, which actually ended literacy tests and other acts that stopped black folks from voting. Although these acts happened many years ago, systemic racism is still alive and well today. Systemic racism is racism that comes in the form of the processes and policies implemented in our schools, banks, jobs, and law enforcement. 
I was doing some research and found a study from Harvard that said 25% of black people got job callbacks after they whitened up their resume, compared to 10% of blacks who left their resume as is. I just seen a news clip where this black couple let their white neighbor act like she owned their home. So when the appraiser came to check the house out, they valued it at 500000 more than they did the original appraisal. And let's not get started on the wage gap between black and white workers. Nah, for real, bro. I seen this study that showed how many extra days a white woman would have to work to make the same annual salary as a white man. Bro, it said a white woman would have to work 100 days, a black woman would have to work 226, and a Hispanic woman would have to work 307 days. Bro, that's almost like a whole year. Man, systemic racism even extends to the point of healthcare. Like, look at the differences in the infant mortality rate. Black babies are 3.8 times as likely to die compared to white babies. There has even been reports and complaints about many black mothers not receiving the proper care while in labor. But you know, saying all this to say, bro, systemic racism is very real and does have an effect on our communities. But it is important that we don't feed into the hype. And what I mean by that is, just because the system is set up for us to lose does not mean it's okay or you should be comfortable sitting around broke. Just because we know cops and lawmakers are prejudiced against people of color does not mean we should feed into their traps. It only means we move smarter because we do have a chip on our shoulder at all times. But we don't crumble or stumble. We just win and grin, baby. Just win and grin. Facts, CEO. And any L we take, we take in silence. Learn from it and flip the L into a dub. Yes, sir, General. We finna take a quick break and then we gonna slide into our insightful interview with the new project coordinator for the 2021 Selma Bridge Crossing Jubilee. Let's get it. Turn us up. Y'all know it's Black History Month, huh? So please check out and support the Black-owned clothing line, AQ23. Their goal is to empower people while providing them the elegance and comfort through positive and motivational quotes on their clothing. I definitely recommend you guys check them out. They're a real deal. You can check them out on their Instagram at AQ underscore XXIII or go on their website at AQ-XXIII-apparel.myshopify.com. Now let's get back to the show. What's up, what's up, my fly folks out there? How y'all doing? I hope y'all doing all right. And today we are speaking with the new project coordinator of the Selma Bridge Crossing Jubilee, Mr. Drew Glover. How you How doing, you doing boss, man? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So give us a little background on you and how you became the head project coordinator for the new Selma Bridge Crossing Jubilee. Absolutely. Well, just a quick note of reference that the Selma Bridge Crossing Jubilee has been going on for like 29, this is the 29th year. So it started a long time before I came here, but I came to this role kind of, you know, serendipitously. It wasn't something that, I mean, I first came to Selma in 2017, and that was because I was working as a nonviolence trainer at a place called the Resource Center for Nonviolence in Santa Cruz, where I come from, Santa Cruz, California. And just spontaneously, this flyer came onto our Facebook page that said, come to Selma, Alabama and learn nonviolence the, from the Kingian perspective from Dr. Bernard Lafayette. And I was like, uh. what? That's crazy. <laughs> but the trick was is that that training happened a day and a half or something later. And this was mm. across the country. I had no plans to do it. So I rallied with my staff, the people that I work with, my fellow staff members over at the Resource Center for Nonviolence and was like, hey, I got I to gotta go to this. Like, I, I need to get this training. We can bring it back to the center here. We can do nonviolence trainings here in Santa Cruz. Uh-huh. And so after some convincing, they agreed. And so they, you know, the organization sent me out to Selma, Alabama to participate in this like epic five day, four day training with mm. Dr. Bernard Lafayette, like the person that helped to lead the voting rights movement in Selma, Alabama oh, during, wow. the, during the during the 60s, which was crazy to be. And it was a group of 20 people. So it was like me in a room with 20 people in this legend. And I was uh. like, I was like <laughs> what, what is this right now? What is this reality? And you know, the week, the, the, the training session was not only powerful and impactful and amazing with stories and, you know, hearing from this dude, but also uh, they had guests, guests come in like the freedom singers that sang in the 1965 voting rights movement and also the kind of stuff and like the, all, uh. all this stuff. So that was crazy. But mm. immediately following the bridge cross, the, the training was the bridge crossing Jubilee, which is included in the like package that I, I purchased when I came to participate. 
Mm. And that really kind of blew my mind. I mean, I went to college and studied sociology. I'm mixed race. I'm, you know, coming from Santa Cruz at that time, working in anti-racism, you know, fighting against police brutality, you know, aware of social justice issues, the civil rights movement, the struggle. I was working in a nonviolent center that was centered around King, you know, so it's like, hey, I know this history, but it wasn't until I came to Selma and participated in the Bridge Crossing Jubilee that it really kind of like woke me up. One, because the city itself, while it is, inc- I mean, there, it's incredibly underserved, let's just put it that way. There's a lot of opportunity to improve the infrastructure and also other kind of stuff, you know, crumbling buildings, broken sidewalks, you know, also other kind of stuff, in- intense poverty. But there's this energy because I live here now. There's this, there's this energy here that it just it's it's carried from the civil rights movement to now where there's such power. It's like unbridled power. And so that mixed with coming from Santa Cruz, which is 2% black, to Selma, mm. Alabama, which is 80% black. I was like, <laughs> "Where am I right now?" Like yeah. everyone everyone looks like me. You have to like try to find a white person. It's, yeah. it's, it's crazy. So there was that. And then I got to hear from civil rights legends like Jesse Jackson and Fred Gray and Diane Nash and, you know, all these, all these folks where I had only read about them in books. And it was awesome. Surrounded by black art, black culture, black music, black people, black food, like blackness. And I always tell people now it, it's where I think I found my blackness because it's, mm. yeah, you know, coming from my background, being raised by a white family in a white community, I was black but I had never had the opportunity to really engage with in-depth, especially Southern black culture. It's my first time to the South. So anyway, I decided that that was such a powerful experience that I would lead cultural exchange trips for the following years. So I would bring people from Santa Cruz to Selma every year to do Mm. community um, service projects, skill exchange, community exchange, cultural exchange, all that kind of stuff. Did that through 2020 and came for the 2020 Jubilee. It was here, you know, no, 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 no. And yeah. then I received a call in like April, April of 2020. And it was the executive director of the Bridge Crossing Jubilee. Now, mind you, I'm a community organizer and I came to the Jubilee for the first time and my, my thought was, man, can you imagine how cool it would be to be involved with this? Like how, <laughs> how great it would be to be involved with the planning and the, and the facilitation of this event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I receive a phone call from the leadership saying, hey, we've been watching what you've been doing because I've been organizing the whole time in Santa Cruz and uh-huh. involved in politics and all that kind of stuff. And like, we, we really like what you're doing. Would you be interested in coming out here uh, to run the, run the event? And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I mean, let me, let, let's talk. Like, what do, you, what do you think? So they set me up for an interview. I interviewed with some board members and stuff. They made the decision, we wrote the contract, and I basically packed all my stuff into some moving containers, had it shipped out here, flew out here, and started my new, uh, new existence in Selma June 1st. And I've been here since June 1st, rock, you know, just trying to rock the, rock the event. Now, mm. granted, this was, you know, <laughs> the Jubilee in 2020 happened at the end of February. The pandemic lockdowns started the middle of March. Yeah. I take the job in May and get here in June. This is when people are still like, oh, you know, and our, you know, president or whatever is saying, it's going to be over by December. No problem. Yeah. It'll be over by December. So we're like, so what are we going to do? Like, mm. are we going to do it in person? Do we do it virtually? So the pandemic was a curveball, but yeah. through that, being able to determine to make it totally virtual, which is awesome for a lot of reasons. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But, you know, and that's, that's how I'm here in Selma now. I, I live here now. I'm, I'm buying a house. And that is amazing. We're going to talk about financial literacy. I mean, that's something I could, I would never thought was a reality when I was living in California. But to be here now and buying a three-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment with a half-acre backyard, like two blocks from the historic bridge where all this crazy civil rights stuff happened, like, yeah, heyo, welcome to life. Most definitely, man. So let's take a little dive back in time. Let's let's take a little dive back in in Black History. You know, it is Black History Month, so. Can you explain the actual impact of the Selma Bridge crossing of 1965? Every day is Black History Month, right? <laughs> yes, sir. I feel like, hey, I'm with it. <laughs> so what happened on the bridge and why was it important? That was really the turning point of the voting rights movement. There mm-hmm. had been work. I mean, a lot of people think the voting rights movement started in Selma in like the 50s and 60s, but really mm-hmm. it started back in like the 30s here in Selma by a group called the Courageous Eight. And, you know, the 30s through the 50s, they were working trying to make this change happen. I mean, 
it, to, I've been, one of the blessings with this job is being able to talk to the people that were involved in the movement and talking about the history that's been going on with it. I mean, there were laws here in Selma that didn't allow certain community members, and I think you know what I mean by certain community members, to Does gather that. in groups of three or more because they didn't want people organizing. And so this group of people, courageous individuals, mm -hmm. met in a group of eight, defying the law to talk about ways that they could structure voting rights movement and get people the ability to vote. And I mean, a lot of people may not know, and this is where we get back to education. You know, one of the questions, I think, I don't know if it's going to be, in, if it's here and somewhere else, but the question you asked me about the responsibility of people based outside of the issue of systemic oppression. I don't think a lot of people know the history. I don't think a lot of people understand, especially in my generation, like the cusp millennials, generation Xers or whatever, and then mm. on, the, the severe brutality that people experienced in this country 56, 60 years ago with regards to... That's not even a long time. Bro. It's not even a long time. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Everyone's like, get over it. It was, you know, slavery was 200 years ago or whatever it is. It's like, yeah, well, slavery ended, but then you had G black laws and then you had Jim Crow and then you had yeah. segregation and then you had the civil rights movement in the 60s. So any, anyway, the, the situation in, in Selma was powerful, not only because of the organizing that was happening before, but the, the march, which is now known as Bloody Sunday, which happened on March 7th, 1965, mm -hmm. which changed the world, I'll talk about it in just a second, uh, was actually prompted by an act of police brutality, which a lot of people don't know. There was mm -hmm. a guy named Jimmy Lee Jackson that was shot in the stomach by a state trooper during a peaceful protest who spent eight days dying in a hospital and then ultimately died as one of the martyrs of the movement. That act of police brutality and that death of Jimmy Lee Jackson, someone called the murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson, prompted leaders to think, okay, how are we going to make a, a statement and demand our voting rights? Originally, they were going to carry his body from Selma to Montgomery in that march, but they decided they were going to march from Selma to Montgomery, and when they gathered on the bridge to to march across, and it wasn't like they were blocking traffic, they walked on the sidewalk and they were just going to walk to Montgomery, they were met on the other side of the bridge by state troopers and posse men that beat them viciously with tear gas and billy clubs. And I mean, we're talking about like women and young children and people that are not about, I mean, John. So was this Bloody Sunday? This is Bloody Sunday. Describe? Yeah, okay. Bloody okay. Sunday, March 7th. Now the trick is, is this brutality was going on forever. It's not like it was anything new, but mm. the fact that they had an organized march, the fact that they were nonviolent and the fact that it was captured on film which was mm. then able to be broadcast around the country, galvanizing these people, you know, some people call them moderates, but galvanizing people around the voting rights movements to realize how brutal things were in the South and then ultimately resulting in thousands of people coming to Selma for the Selma to Montgomery march, which then put pressure on the president to call mm. on the National Guard to guard them from walking from Selma to Montgomery, where then ultimately you know, that, that impact was the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed. The impact of that is a black president. The impact of mm -hmm. that is now a female, mixed race, black Indian, or, you know, vice, vice president. Mm -hmm. it, it made it so that people like you and I can vote. I mean, without having to guess how many cotton balls were in a jar, like, <laughs> like, or how many bubbles were in a bar of soap. I mean, these are actual questions that people had to answer in order to be able to vote. So uh, it changed the world. And not just in the United States, really, which is really quick, because a lot of people think, okay, well, it gave people in the United States the right to vote, or gave black people the right to vote. It, then it was about black people voting. But in reality, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 gave everyone the right to vote. And that um, example of nonviolent resistance and overcoming, because Selma is a story of the have-nots winning over the people that had everything. They didn't have land, uh -huh. they didn't have money, they didn't have guns, but they won over the oppressive systems in Selma, uh, which then triggered places all around the world that were dealing with other kinds of systemic oppression to take up those uh, strategies of nonviolence and ultimately changing the course of history. So a lot from that. So I know President uh, Lyndon Johnson didn't sign the actual act until August 6th of that year. So do you think this march was so 
particularly successful because it was able to be broadcasted nationwide or yeah it's because it, it was because it was broadcast because the images mm -hmm. were captured you know people's women and children screaming while they were being beaten by billy clubs and people carrying them off covered in blood to the side so that they could people running choking and tear gas just because they wanted the right to vote and mm -hmm. a lot of people, I mean, there's that quote from Dr. King, and again, I'll, I'll paraphrase it here, but the biggest threat to the Negro isn't the racist council member of the Ku Klux Klan, but it's the white moderate that says, I agree with your cause, but I don't agree with how you obtain it or how you get there. This mm -hmm. visual of the violence made it so that people couldn't ignore it anymore and forced them to make a moral decision within themselves of where do I stand on this issue of these people that are humans, that are citizens of the United States, where do we stand on their ability to vote? And then that's mm. what caused so many people to get involved. And LBJ, you know, the, the president, he was resi you know, he didn't really want to sign the bill, but he had to because there was so much public pressure that was mounting from all these different groups because of what they saw. And if he did not, you know, if he hadn't assigned it, you know, that would have been political suicide. So mm. it, I don't know how much, I mean, we give him some credit, but took some, <laughs> took some pressure to get him to sign it. Definitely. So let's touch back a little bit. I know we were talking about some of the methods that they use to stop people from voting. Because I, when I was doing my research, I seen that they were doing like literacy tests and different things like that. So I'm thinking it was like just reading. But you said, you know, it, it's guessing, you know, how many bubbles are in, you know, a little um, can or whatever. Yeah. So explain a little bit more about those methods that they use to stop, you know, black people from voting. Yeah. Voter suppression was very real. There were literacy tests, which in themselves were unethical because demanding that someone know how to read and write when you don't give them access to a quality education or whose parents were sharecroppers, whose parents were slaves, and then not having that generational access to education in itself is immoral and unethical and is developed specifically to stop people from voting. But then there were the impossible questions. How many cotton balls are in a jar? How many jelly beans are in a jar? How many mm. uh, bubbles are in a bar of soap? These, you know, and if you didn't know them, then and you didn't know the question, then you, and, and it was all up to the person giving the test. You know, like they could say, oh yeah, totally. That's exactly, that's, that's the right number. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. But then there were other more direct means of voter suppression, which were that they would publish the names of all the people that registered to vote in the newspaper for like mm. two weeks or something like that. So if you're a black community member, and you know, I was, you know, I was talking to a woman today. She was married during the voting rights movement and had a, a family, her name was Alice West. And I was uh, talking with her today, and she was talking about when they would gather at Brown Chapel and other you know, churches, and the Ku Klux Klan would ride around the church on their horses yelling, you know, I don't know if this is a, we're on, we're on the radio or something like that. So N-word go home, you know, like N-word, yeah. you know, get, get out of here. So, and I learned a new term today. What is it? Cluckers. That's what they used to, that's what the black people called the Ku Klux Klan, the, uh. the, the, the cluckers. So to live in a community where there were cluckers that would find your name in the newspaper if you were a black person and probably potentially come and kill you, that was a big deterrent. For getting people to vote as well so and that would have uh, deterred me <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's where the the idea of courageous courageous reality comes in so you know we know the impact of civil rights leaders like martin luther king john lewis and rosa parks who would you say are some of the names that aren't talked about enough when it comes to the civil rights movement well amelia boynton robinson do you know do you know her no sir i haven't heard of her marie foster can't say I heard of her either. No. Reverend F.D. Reese. You got me. Now you're yeah. making me look bad. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, I mean, there, there are so many names, but especially those of the Courageous Eight. So if anyone's listening to this and, you know, you're like, who is he talking about? Or, you know, man, I should know this stuff. Google, mm -hmm. which is our best friend nowadays, is Facts. Google the Courageous Eight learn about them. They were the people, like I mentioned before, that defied the city and gathered in a group of eight and started the voting rights movement in Selma. So Dr. Bernard Lafayette, like I mentioned before, I mean, this, these are just people that are centered around Selma specifically and, and what's been going on. But even, you know, all of their organizing is powerful and important, but mm. so are the people that put their bodies, minds, and lives on the line to be that 
group of people that, that kind of faced that violence uh, and knowingly faced that violence. I mean, we're not talking about a bunch of people that said, hey, let's go walk across a bridge to Montgomery. This yeah. was after weeks and weeks and months of nonviolence training of like, hey, okay, th th this is going to happen. There, there's going to be violence and you can't, you can't respond to that. So imagine the courage, we talk about courage again, and, and in Kingian nonviolence, principle number one is nonviolence is the way of life for courageous people. You, mm -hmm. you have to think about what it would take to know that you're walking into that and still do it. Definitely. So I, I th I'd say a lot of foot, the foot soldiers, a lot of them whose names most people don't know, they're, they're heroes, as well as the courageous eight and the people that helped to drive the movement when it was the most dangerous. I mean, there's John Lewis, right, which we all know and love. C.T. Vivian, you know who that is? Who? I'm sorry. C.T. Vivian? No. Joseph Lowry? I know Kyle Lowry. Right. <laughs> and then Bruce Boynton, you know Bruce Boynton? No. Yeah, so, so Bruce Boynton was like the first freedom rider, if you know what the freedom rides are, which yep. was the, the desegregation of the interstate bus travel. But so this year for the Jubilee, we're, we have a special panel called the Legacy Panel. It's going to happen on Saturday, March 6th at 3 p.m. Central Time. And we're, we have amazing folks like NAACP President Derek Johnson, Dolores Huerta, Reverend William Barber, Wisdom Cole, Camille Bennett. Mm talking about the life and impact of the people that we lost just in 2020, but also the, the need for the movement moving forward and using their legacy and foundational kind of stuff that they've set up for us to, to keep the movement going. So would you agree that a lack of financial education in our communities probably contributed to some of the injustice we've faced? You know, I actually seen a video where it talked about financial education playing a big part in the socioeconomics of different races. So I definitely wanted to, you know, get your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple different ways to look at that. Let's just start by the, the, the broad, has it contributed to things in our communities? Yeah, I think that you know, there's a great animated music video. I think it's called like Brush Your Teeth or something like that where it's, it's, I think it was like little, I don't even know who it was, like Little John. Anyway, mm. it's this <laughs> silly animated video that's rap, but instead of it being like, you know, women and mud, you know, all this other kind of stuff, it's yeah. like, brush your teeth, brush your teeth, and like, <laughs> buy land, F spinning rims. And it's that concept of where are we putting our money as a people? Mm. Are we buying cars we can't afford? Are we buying shoes that are just way overpriced because they're really popular or they make us have street cred? Now, street cred is a whole nother issue because street cred is a very real thing, especially mm -hmm. if, from a, if you're from a poor community, especially if you're born into a life of having to prove yourself through your financial means, mm -hmm. even if you don't have those financial means. So, you know, what's more important in someone's life, investing in real estate and property or buying a car that's worth, you know, 50,000 bucks and putting $30,000 rims on it? I would say investing in property because then you have stability and the one thing, you know, one thing that's always forever in value is land, right? That's the one thing Definitely. that we really need to purchase. But, but I don't blame the people. Like you say, it's financial literacy. It's the messaging and it is the culture that's been built around us now and this gets into the idea of music it gets into mm. the idea of the messages put out through music and and you know are those beneficial just a little side tangent I was driving today in my car and i looked to my yeah. left and and there's this this these two women in the front seat two black women and then these like three young black kids in the back and they're playing this you know really aggressive money and hose Yes. song and the kids the parents are sitting there and the kids in the back seat like like getting down saying every word to it and i'm, I'm just in my yeah. head i'm like no like like <laughs> like that's okay enjoy the music but like what are you teaching these kids to Definitely. help to help them realize that this the the the, the, the possibility of reaching that level of music with this category and glorifying that perspective without mm. having real life investments in what you're doing and and paying attention to your own financial stability is incredibly detrimental. And I think it has a lot to do with the reason people turn to drug sales uh, or other kinds of illegal ways to generate money is because if you don't have a financial literacy and you don't mm -hmm. have the opportunities given to you through living in a place that provides a living wage, that provides dignified jobs, that provides access to the resources that you uh, require to live, you will, in order to survive, 
turn to other means of making money in order to one, maintain your credibility in the community and so that you're not seen like a punk or a B word. And then also so that you can survive and put food on your table to pay your electric bill, to get your uh, gas not shut off during the winter, to get your trash picked up, you know, all these kinds Mm. of things. So yes, financial literacy without that, as well as other compounding factors. It's not just financial literacy, but other compounding factors. They, mm. they didn't let slaves read or write, brother, like for <laughs> a reason, for a reason, because they knew that if they learned how to read and write, then they'd be able mm. to participate in our, in our systems. Black Wall Street, for example, you know that? Yep. Yeah, so hey, that's a problem. And that was what happens before the civil rights movement, before these kind of legal protections, and I would hope a shift in mentality took place when black people succeeded in finances is that they were bombed, hung, shot, disappeared, or banished essentially from society because of their success. Or they had their creations or other kinds Mm. of financial wealth stolen from them through the legal loopholes that, you know, people, white people created. So, you know, and, and and I say that people go like, why are you hating on white people, man? I'm not saying, and I just want to preface this as a disclaimer, if you're white and you're listening to this, I'm not saying that you're evil. I am saying that you benefit from the situations that have held my people down. And now that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. In fact, you mm-hmm. might even have been poor, or had a really hard life, which is totally real. There are poor white people out there. They have a hard life. They got to deal with all kinds of stuff. But we're not talking about you. We're talking about the population of people, the history of this kind of stuff. And white people then especially the ones in power and making these rules were mm. pretty gosh darn bad. Now, I wouldn't call them evil because Dr. King says that people aren't evil, that systems are evil, and that we need to appeal to the humanity in, in individuals to make them see the light and understand the, the error of their ways, which is totally true. Definitely. But white people were the ones doing all the deeds that, and during the time <laughs> we're talking about, and we need to call it out for what it is. I agree 100%, boss. Like, honestly. So the summer Jubilee is going virtual this year for the first time, correct? Totally correct. <laughs> so how has that experience been for you? Whew. <laughs> so that sound effect is a good one. That's a good, yeah. a good summation of the experience. It has been a cacophony of obstacles and opportunities. Mm. Right? I like to see them both because you can't have the good without the bad and you have to acknowledge uh, the, the hardships but also the benefits that come with those hardships. So I mean, Definitely. we're talking, the, the Bridge Crossing Jubilee for anyone that has never been there before is a event that draws like 50,000 people a year to Selma, Alabama. It's like called the annual pilgrimage to, to Selma. Everyone comes every year. We got vendors and concerts and workshops and speeches and dinners and galas and awards and Mm. just all these things street fairs i think i probably said that already because it's a big thing street fairs so the question and this wasn't until september that we started asking this question because we're like it's gonna the government says it's gonna be fine it's good let's let's plan it's good then it's like september rolls around it's like this isn't it's not gonna be fine it's not (laughs) it's not gonna Uh. be fine so we made that pivot all right we're gonna we're gonna do everything virtually so you just decided that in September? In September, yeah, Whew. yeah, I know. So okay, now I don't know why you made that. <laughs> <laughs> so we got what September, October, November, December, January, February, March. So that gives us seven months to convert a fifty thousand person event that everyone is used to coming to in person into a Definitely. virtual platform. So uh, you know, first and foremost, money. Talk about financial literacy, right? Where's the money mm-hmm. going to come from? Attention and focus from the world amidst a global pandemic, amidst a election of the century or whatever you want to call it, right? Amidst Mm. runoffs, amidst impeachments. How do you get people to pay attention to something like this? And then also, how do you produce it? Like, what does the production look like to be able to make it so that it's engaging high enough quality so it doesn't look like someone's shot everything in their garage? You know, like, what is what does this look like? And it's been it's been an adventure. But I, I would say that we are incredibly fortunate for a variety of reasons. One, we have an amazing coordinating team. I mean, I got I got people that meet 30 people that meet with me every Saturday for two Mm. hours to talk about how we're going to do this. And we have midweek meetings for all of the sub teams of those 30 people that meet during the week. That's dedication. And they're all volunteers, which is we got people from all around the country doing this. We got everyone from the West Coast to the East Coast to the South Coast to the North Coast. 
Like, <laughs> even though they're not really coast. Look how the board is, right? <laughs> so uh, across the country, people are engaged and involved. And we are incredibly fortunate because we have amazing production partners. Go West Creative, which is our primary and main production company based out of Nashville, Tennessee. I met their... I think he's the vice president and one of their one of their leadership, David Fischett. I met him in our souvenir shop. I was, you know, it's one of my other jobs is managing a souvenir shop. So I was sitting there okay. doing work on my laptop. He walks in, we strike up a conversation. He's like, "Yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm turning this thing into. This is back in like, like this is back in like September, October. I was like, yeah, mm. I'm, I'm turning this event into a virtual thing. It's crazy. And he's all like, hey, I just happened to run a company that specializes in turning these kinds of events into virtual. And I was like, what? That's nuts. <laughs> And so they're, they, I mean, they've donated time, energy, sweat, tears, hopefully not too much blood into, <laughs> into helping to make this a reality. We got film crews and editing crews in New Jersey, California, Birmingham, working on the project. We got people and partners from Chicago to New York to Florida, like all across the country that have said, hey, let's, let's rally together and make this happen. So it's been hard, but the opportunities, like I mentioned before, have yeah. resulted in us being able to now offer this history and this knowledge to the world. Uh, to, or mm. let me rephrase that because we don't want to be uh, ignorant of the lack of access to resources to anyone with an internet connection. They can mm. participate and engage for free now. There's because there's a lot of people in the world that don't have access to internet, but so so we can reach a much broader audience. And the goal with this too is that hopefully uh, it will inspire people to be not only more aware of the history, but want to come back in 2022 when, fingers crossed, praise the, the spirit, the pandemic is over, and then we can Definitely, come back together in person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I actually saw that you were adding some new events to the Jubilee this year, and one of those events is spotlighting young entrepreneurs. You know, I don't know how I didn't get the call for that, but, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, how important would you say entrepreneurship is? Uh, it's critical. In fact, that's one of the things that we thought of for that. Now, because of the virtual shift, we're going to have to postpone that till next year, which is, I believe you're calling the Unison Venture Summit, right? Which is what you're talking about. And we create, we, we came up with that idea, a guy, Katie Stewart, K-K-D Stewart, not Katie Stewart, mm -hmm. but Katie Stewart, here in Selma, he runs a incubator company that's actually going to open up on Broad Street, I think, which is really exciting. And we both agreed that it is so important to be able to provide a opportunity, a window, an avenue for people to be inspired and share their ideas, and also for mm. investors, both local and regional, maybe even national, to see these young entrepreneurs and give them the opportunity to invest in them. So uh, that's one of the reasons why we uh, created the concept for the Unison Venture Summit and one of the reasons why, especially next year as we come back, we'll mm. be able to really drive it home with lifting up people, especially the people of Selma. I mean, that's one of our main goals is to provide space for people from Selma to share their ideas and concepts and, and let people understand mm -hmm. the brilliance that exists here amidst the, you know, what, the, the, the issues that they're dealing with and, and lifting oh. them up. So entrepreneurship is incredibly important, but support of entrepreneurship is just as important because you can have someone with a great idea, but if you don't have people that are willing to support them and invest in them, then it feels like you're pushing a giant boulder against the wall and trying to get it somewhere else. Mm. It's not going to move. So, you know, support entrepreneurship, support young entrepreneurship and support black entrepreneurship, I think is another one that we're going to be emphasizing here to make sure that people are, are aware of it. Definitely. And I fall under all three of those categories. So make sure y'all <laughs> yes. sure support us, support FYI Fly. So we got to ask you a little bit, some, some money questions here, man. You know, this is FYI Fly. So give us some positive money habits that you do personally. And if you have any negative, let us know so we can cut them off. <laughs> Good. Well, for one thing, I have an automatic transfer set up in my bank to move $500 a month from my checking into my savings account. So I know I'm always putting money away without even having to think about it. If I have you know, surplus or extra money, I, I can always transfer more, but at least that way I know I'm saving, what, $6,000 a year if, mm. if that's going that way. The other thing is being, you know, just really intentionally frugal with my purchases. I learned that, that phrase from my mom. I remember her saying it was, what's frugal mean? But uh. it just being conscious about how you spend your money. For example, I really want a PS5. So it's a message out there to everybody. I, I really want a PS5, but <laughs> I don't have a PS5. I have a PS4, which is fine because mm. it is, 
I know that the cost of the PS5 will go down. There's not a lot of games that are out for the PS5 right now that I absolutely need to have. And I work so much that I barely play video games anyway. So is, is it worth me spending another 500 bucks for the system and then, you know, so another grand, let's just say, if I want the whole package for a PS5? Probably not. Now, this is something that's a little more controversial with my friends that I've talked to about. You notice how I have a scarf on right now. It's because I, I live in a house. Now, I'm buying the house, which is something which we'll talk about in a second around financial habits. But I, it's 100 years old, and it doesn't have the best insulation. So I installed an HVAC system this summer because it was way too hot to be able to exist. But <laughs> I didn't connect my gas because there's no... In, not, not a lot of insulation, so if I'm using the heater, then I'm running the heater constantly to try to heat up the entire house, mm. which is going to drain my money intensely, and I'm not going to be in the living room when I'm in my room, so why do I need the living room to be cold or warm when I'm in my room and pay money if it's not going to heat the whole house? So I don't mm. have a heater right now in this house in Alabama in the winter. Now I'm from California. Oh, man. This is my first time being in Alabama for the winter. I'd do it again. I would do it again, but it's been really cold, except mm. I have a space heater in my room, which is going to cost me money in electricity, but not nearly as much as in gas and heating my entire house constantly throughout the night. So Definitely. It's, those, it's those little things like that. When I did live in a place where there was a grocery outlet, I shopped at grocery outlet and not at Safeway because grocery outlet had the same kind of stuff, but at a much lower price. And it's mm. funny when, when I started, when I started dating my fiance, I was like, hey, let's go to Grocery Outlet. She'd be like, I don't want to go. I shop at Safeway. I don't want to go to Grocery Outlet. And then she started coming with me to Grocery Outlet and realizing how much money we were saving going to Grocery uh, Outlet. And now, <laughs> she, now she loves Grocery Outlet. So, uh, so, so it's, that, it's that kind of stuff. But at the same time, not, not sacrificing your own self-care. You know, like mm. I can stay warm. I'm a warm-blooded guy. But if you're someone that's cold or has anemia, don't not have a heater. If you're someone that is thinking about, hey, I'm going to give up fresh vegetables for canned stuff. Don't do it. Spend the money on fresh vegetables because it's better for your body. So it's a balance. Bad financial habits, you know, sometimes I like to go on trips that, you know, which, are, which is cool, and then you spend like a thousand bucks for lodging if you're staying for like a week in a nice Airbnb. You know, yeah. I, could, I could spend less than that if I were to like rent a room in a hostel, but it, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a balance. It's a balance. Uh, most dope. <laughs> most dope. So I got one more question for you, boss man. I'm going to read you two quotes, and I need you to tell me which quote is more accurate in your opinion. You ready? Yeah, bring it. All right, let's do it. So my first quote is, money can't buy happiness. And my second quote is, more money, more problems. Which one is more accurate in your opinion? Money can't buy happiness. Why is that? Let's just say you have something in your life that brings you immense joy and it is unique and special and you've never experienced anything like it. If you give that up to make more money and never find it again, mm. you will regret it and you will curse your money or your success or your fame or whatever it is because you will consistently and always wish that you had that thing that made you happy. So what about the, the more money, more problems? Do you agree with that or you don't agree with that? I mean, it depends on how much money you have. I don't think Jeff Bezos, besides having people hate him, has very many problems. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like, I don't, I don't know. If I, had a if I had a billion dollars and I could afford anything I wanted to and do anything I wanted to, I don't know how many problems I would have. Because you know? mm. even now, with all these things, I mean, I I'm not... I'm, I'm not rich. I don't have a ton of money. If something were to happen to me, just like with most Americans, if something were to happen to me that took like $20,000, I would be floored as mm -hmm. far as my savings and my, you know, my, my money and all that kind of stuff. So, and, and that's not because I'm irresponsible with money. That's not because I've made any crazy gambles or bets. It's because mm -hmm. of the society that we live in and the cost of living versus the amount of money people get paid on an average level. And this, mm. I mean, and this opens up a whole conversation of the poor people's campaign, poverty, you know, the middle class and the evaporation of the middle class, all this other kind of stuff. But, but yeah, I, I could see that people would say that people dislike you because you're rich or that people want things from you or that you don't know who your real friend is because you're rich. Like all of those kind of cliche classic arguments around like, oh, it's so hard to have money. I find that a little bit hard to believe just with regards to, but, but at the same time, I think it matters what you, it matters the kind of person you are. You know, mm -hmm. I, I come from the perspective of give what you can, take what you need. 
I'm not trying to hoard my money. I'm not trying to step on people to in, in, able to, in order to get that money. And so if I were to obtain money through my means, just like Dr. King says, the ends do not justify the means, right? So if, if I'm rich, but I do it in a way that's compassionate, inclusive, involved, engaged, and is doing something that benefits my community, uh -huh. then I don't see very many problems with that or problems coming from that because your community will appreciate you. You will feel good about the way that you earn that money and the impact that you're having with that money and what you're doing with it. And I mean, the only thing that would suck is taxes, but you know, I think taxes are taxing the rich is important. I mean, there's that saying, eat the rich, right? The tax, the rich that we uh. need to tax incredibly wealthy people at a much higher rate so that we can redistribute that wealth. And I, I'd, I'd love to talk to you more about that because I don't know if you agree with that or not. It's a touchy subject, especially with financial yeah. people. But <laughs> yeah, it, taxes are, are something. So I mean, I, I would be okay with paying taxes if I had a ton of money because ideally that money is going, except for war. That's mm. the problem, right? If I'm paying taxes and it's gonna go buy a $6 billion fighter jet that's gonna kill children in Yemen, like what, what, what I don't wanna want pay those taxes. So it's, a tr it's tricky, There's, there, it's a yeah. web of reality. You know, I think with taxes, it's just about, you know, listening to FYI Fly and learning how to shield your taxes and shield your money from taxes and, you know, different tax advantaged accounts and different things like that. And owning LLCs, owning businesses and and using those tax advantages to your advantage. So that's that's what I feel like, you know, the rich do. They they find ways to not pay taxes. They do, and that's one of the reasons why we kind of live in the world we live in, though, right now, in a lot of ways. And this is, mm. and, and I hopefully will still want to come, have you come back on your show and talk about taxes. Because yeah. the, if, let's just say, if Jeff Bezos and other people of his wealth caliber paid the amount of taxes they actually should pay into our system, then mm. we could do so much more for the people that we're talking about that are either underserved, you know, we could have free college, we could have free healthcare. We could have mm. all these things that would benefit a huge portion of society if we were able to cut into those loopholes that you're talking mm -hmm. about to make sure they're paying their fair share. Now, entrepreneurs and young people that are trying to build their wealth and all that kind of stuff, sure. But the mega rich, uh -huh. they, they, need to pay, they need to pay taxes. Yeah, I could, I could definitely agree on that. I could definitely agree on that. But yeah, we definitely have to have you back on here talking about that and talking about taxes and, you know, more of the political structures and how those implement into the, you know, minority community. So believe, believe we'll be reaching back out to you. <laughs> well, it's been a really great experience being on the show with you and I appreciate the invitation. Yes, sir. You know, we appreciate your time here. Thank you for joining us on FYI Fly the Podcast. Please let the audience know where they can reach you, where they can reach um, the Selma Jubilee links and everything, because it is coming up very soon. So let the audience know, please. 14 days from the time we're talking right now, but it's on March 5th through the 7th of 2021. So whenever you're hearing the broadcast of this or listening to it on YouTube or all of the other great places, I'm sure that they have it posted March 5th through the 7th, 2021. It's absolutely free, free. We got a music concert <laughs> with Music Soul Child and okay. TL Cross and Sebastian Cole and you know Yolanda Harper and Tony Red and Kim Waters. It's gonna be epic. As well as a whole bunch of really great other activities, workshops that can help uh, with the development of the understanding of these nonviolent social change and organizing. So go to selmajubilee.com and you can register totally free share it with your friends, put it on your social media, tell your, your associates of whatever caliber to join us, and then we'll see you virtually at the Jubilee. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We love it. Thank you so much again. Now we're going to take it back to Remy G and me for one of our favorite segments in the show called Did You Know? Let's go. Welcome back. Welcome back to FYI Fly the Podcast. And y'all know what time it is, or maybe y'all don't. But me and Mr. Make a Play finna let y'all know. Did you know? Besides voting rights, Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was shot and killed by Alabama police, was one of the main inspirations to the civil rights marches. Did you know the Edmund Pettus Bridge is named after a KKK Grand Dragon member? Did you know that President Johnson did not sign the Voting Acts of 1965 until August, even though the protests were held in March? Did you know 100 of the 600 marchers had to seek medical attention after Bloody Sunday? Did you know? The Selma Bridge Crossing Jubilee is the largest civil rights event. Did you know only 14% of black people in Alabama were registered to vote and only 5% in Mississippi? 
To wrap it all up for you guys, the Selma Bridge Crossing was one of the most impactful and memorable events during the Civil Rights Movement. Not only did it bring to light the injustice that had taken place for many years, it actually led to a change. A change that is still felt to this day, which is why we need to make sure anytime we have a chance to speak up, we do it and let our voices be heard. Because back then, we didn't even have the chance. Even if we wanted to, it was illegal. So y'all better speak up, because you know we are. Huh, yo. You already know, man. We can't just settle for whatever is handed to us. You know, that's back to the systemic racism, bro. Like, I really feel like some folks try to use that as an excuse to be complacent. We gotta make our own way. Yes, we are at a disadvantage, but if you accept that, you will forever be at a disadvantage. Your kids will be at a disadvantage, and their kids will be at a disadvantage, unless you take action right now. The decisions we make now are gonna have a direct impact on our future and our family's future. So we have to educate ourselves on things that weren't taught in school like financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and other wealth building tactics. You know the stuff that we talk about here on FYI Fly. Now this is what will really lead you to living the life of your dreams. Worry-free, stress-free. Hey, you know what Future said now, huh? Take my advice. Hey. Live a better life. Hey. Well, we thank y'all for joining us in this special episode of FYI Fly, the podcast. And we'll be back to you guys again every Friday starting in April. Ain't that financial literacy month? And my birthday month, so you know how we get down. And some party. And it's COVID? Shoot, heck no. But when the world opens back up, it's up there, bro. But like I said, in April, FYI Fly will be dropping every Friday. So tell a friend to tell a friend. To tell a friend. Please subscribe and leave a review. We'd really appreciate that. And for the first time in 2021, stay safe. Stay invested. And stay fly. Thank you all for listening to FYI Fly, the podcast. And we hope you enjoyed the show. Tune in next week for more financial literacy insights with our special guest. Please visit our website, social media platforms, and subscribe to our YouTube channel at FYI Fly Podcast. That's FYI FLI Podcast. See y'all next week and stay fly. But don't y'all go anywhere just yet. Stay tuned as each week here on FYI Fly, we like to give an independent artist a place to shine and gain some exposure. This week we have It Starts in the Heart by Alvin Garrett. Let's get it. Do we know where the road's gonna end? Who are we following? Are we further than where we began? Who are we watching? Are we sure that there's really a friend? Why are we hollering? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. That's not how we're gonna win. Mm.